This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title of Made Meet or Accepted. The first, the first uh, tape recording was made about 18 months ago and since then there has been hospital and sickness and so we are using the Sunday morning service to be able to take that subject through and make it uh, available for folks who take the tape recordings. The only thing about it is that the length of the tape will be slightly shorter. Now we had, we have had before us during the last few Sunday mornings the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 1, which leads on to the climax of the first section accepted in the Beloved. And I felt that it would be a very wise thing. Instead of me trying to tell you what accepted in the Beloved involves, the Apostle has done so in the epistle that he wrote to the Colossians at the same time. So that we are really continuing an exposition of Ephesians 1 and we are taking all this time to make ourselves appreciate what he said in that one verse in Ephesians. So here we are with Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, ending at verse 22. Verse 12 says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And at the end of the story, in the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now you may have wondered why we had readings from Daniel 10 and Revelation 1. Well, the one thing that is in common between the two is the effect upon a holy man like Daniel when he was in the presence of a spiritual power. He collapsed. His, his comeliness was turned into corruption. And John said he fell at his feet as one dead. Well, I don't know what you think of yourselves, friends, but I don't think you're better than Daniel, do you? Or John who wrote the book of the Revelation. So not one of us would be able to stand in the presence of Christ in his glory. And yet, we are told we not only have access, but boldness of access. Oh, what grace has been shown to us, so that it's a very wise thing, I think, that we have a very clear idea of what this acceptance involves and how it has come about. Now we read in the first, uh, in the opening words, in verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, that is very parallel to blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet, meet, now that's an expression that has to do for several allied meanings. When you go to meet somebody and when you are accepted or fit for a job, there's a link between the two, but particularly in the scriptural sense. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Exodus 25:22 to see the ground of this meeting, which is set forth in the symbolism of the Old Testament uh, 
tabernacle and its teaching. Exodus 25 It says in this um, chapter about the making of the ark and the fittings that were to be arranged. Uh, You will notice that it uh, occupies a great deal of this section from verse 10. And it may be interesting for you to know that the Septuagint translation describing the kind of wood that was to be used was that which was um, incorruptible. I mean, we might refer to cedar wood or a pine that's got resin in it as being sort of incorruptible. It's got a preservative. But the point is, what a picture it is of the person of Christ. The fleshly side of Christ, the wood. And then all overlaid with gold. But not the wood or the gold or the cherubim on top or the mercy seat itself was sufficient. For the atonement was used once a year and that mercy seat was sprinkled with the blood that was shed. And then we go on to say in this verse 22, um, verse 21, And thou shalt put the mercy seat above, upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. Notice, that testimony was the law of God, and although nobody had kept it, it was there in the ark, honoured and preserved. So it goes on to say, and there I will meet with thee. There I will meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. I believe that's true to this very day. We have no meeting place except that which has been made for us by the sacrificial work of Christ. And I would like to ask you to notice uh, Isaiah 53 in this connection. Isaiah 53. You know that great prophecy concerning our Saviour. And the two verses I want to ask you to put together. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Now I'm going to give a new translation. And the Lord hath made to meet on him the iniquity of us all. That was at the cross. Now the last verse. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and he made a meeting place for the transgressors. The same word is used in those two verses. We have to translate them a little differently. He first of all had the meeting place for our sins upon his own innocent head. And then in the glory, as a, as a consequence, he made a meeting place for you and for me. So with Exodus 25 and, and Isaiah 53, we cannot possibly ignore the fact that our acceptance in the Beloved, our being made meet to stand in his presence, is entirely connected with and based upon that one offering which he made for us, without which we are far off and dead in sins.
Well, then we come back to the to the passage in Colossians to notice just what it says with regard to this marvellous acceptance. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. I stressed it just now. I do again. We have a hymn, haven't we, which expresses a little bit of that thought. Eternal light. Eternal light. How pure that soul must be. <coughs> and were it not for this <coughs> work of Christ on our account, we should have to shriek back. We should collapse as Daniel did and as John did in the presence of that holiness. But one of the marvels is that you and I, with all our conscious failings, are going to be not needy presented somewhere, but in the light, accepted in the light, and in his sight. Verses 12, as you've already seen, and verse 22. The next thing I would like you to realise is this word, the inheritance of the saints. Saints in the English language is largely limited to people. A person who has been canonized as a saint or has a saintly life. But it is used in the New Testament not only of people, but of places and things, which is foreign to our usage. But inasmuch as the Bible is not written, first of all, in English, we don't want to be deprived of any help that we can get in this direction. Now I'm going to tell you the word which we have in front of us, tome hagion. Those of you who are acquainted with the construction of the Greek will know that that is the plural and it is in the genitive which means of the holy places, of the saints. That's the word here. The inheritance of the saints. Um, the basic teaching for this is found in one book in the New Testament and that is the epistle to the Hebrews so if you will turn to the Hebrews I would point out to you where these words occur and how they have a bearing upon our standing and acceptance Hebrews chapter 8 Hebrews chapter 8 Verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. That is the same expression that we have in Colossians 1. And again, in chapter 9, verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of a divine service and a worldly sanctuary. In chapter two, 9, verse 2. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And verse 3. We have again the holiest of all. Stop there for a minute. Stop there for a minute. The holiest of all. We have been made meet to be partakers of an inheritance 
which is associated with the holiest of all. Now there are great restrictions in the Old Testament concerning that part of the tabernacle. There was a veil. The priests went into the outer temple, but only once a year was that veil lifted. And the high priest went in once a year, not without blood. And as I think I've reminded you before, the people of Israel were so concerned about the holiness of that entry of the high priest that if he had collapsed in the holiest of all, they wouldn't have dared to have gone in. So they added to the instructions of God and he had a rope fixed round his ankle. But that's by the way. But don't you see, friends, what I'm getting at? You and I, with all our failings, with all the things that go to make us as we are, have been so made neat by the blood of Christ and through his grace that we can go where the holy high priest wouldn't dare to go except once a year. And he only in the tabernacle down here on earth. But we, in the true tabernacle which God pitched and not men, in heaven itself. It sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? And I often feel that is a good definition of the grace of God. Too good to be true, if God hadn't said it. So here, I won't give you all the references uh, to quote them, but you will find there's quite a number in chapter 9, and in chapter 10, and in chapter 13. So we have now this thought of the um, inheritance in the saints. I think now we ought to look at Ephesians back again, because if our inheritance is in the holiest of all, and if Ephesians is a parallel epistle to Colossians, and if one says our inheritance is in the holiest of the all, and our other one says our inheritance is somewhere else, either there is a contradiction, or there is an expansion and an explanation. So, here we have in Ephesians 1, 18, these words. The eyes of your always says, I'll go back a bit further, that's too bad to start there. Verse 15, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints. Uh, don't forget that, friends. It's one thing for us to be very, very sound with regard to our faith in the Lord Jesus, and then have very little love for his people. I think you'll realise that's possible. But the two go together here. He says, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That is to say, I'm not asking that they are or should be, but he says, I'm assuming they are, because if your eyes are not opened, I cannot go further. That you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So we've got the same expression there. But we are told that our blessings are all in heavenly places where Christ sits. 
at the right hand of God, far above all heavens. So far above all heavens is the heavenly holiest of all, and then the marvel of it is, the saints who are here mentioned, common people as you and I may be, forgiven as we have been, accepted as we have been, have our place there. It almost seems wrong to say so, doesn't it? Because it seems as though it's too great and too wonderful to be true. But here's the word of God plainly written. So we'll look at one or two other references to this same uh, statement. Chapter 2 of Ephesians 19. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, they once were, you see, and is referring to the temple in type that stood at Jerusalem. Because he says in verse 14, for, oh, but in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. Now he doesn't go to speak about sins, he goes to speak about the fact that we were Gentiles and outsiders. For he is our peace, who hath made thee both, he's speaking about two companies, thee both, one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And that refers to the temple at Jerusalem. And as you know, but I must repeat again, there was a slab of stone which can be seen still in this in London, which had an inscription reading something like this. No one being a foreigner may go beyond this balustrade. Anyone who does so, it will be responsible for his death, which will surely follow. Well, that meant that Peter could go into the temple and a Gentile, like uh, the one that he converted just recently, had to stop outside. But says Paul, that's all gone. The Jew and the Gentile now are blended. One new man, so making peace. And so it goes on and says, and that he might reconcile the both unto God in one body, by the cross, having slain the enmity. What enmity? Well, there's many aspects of enmity, our own peculiar sin, but he slain the enmity that existed in the middle wall of partition that made all that difference between one and the other. And came and preached peace to you which were far off and to those, to them that were nigh. Still the far off and nigh, not so much the sinner and the saint. Now we have, for through him, we, the both, have access by one spirit unto the Father. And of course you can quite see that I'm justified in a little play upon words. There could be no access if there hadn't been acceptance. And then I'll take it one stage further, that if you and I boast in God as having this marvellous access and this wonderful acceptance, I wonder whether we're acceptable with regard to our actions one to another and the way in which we comport ourselves. That's a searching question, isn't it, that I think we should endure and taste. So it says here, 
For through him we the both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now we are coming at long last to the saints. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Now the authorised version has acknowledged there in that translation that they were not quite sure of themselves. Because there is no word for with. Anybody who knows the original can see that there is no word that means with. But what can it mean when it says fellow citizens of the saints? How could we be fellow citizens of saints? Ah, Hebrew says that word saints has been used over and over again of heaven's sanctuary. Fellow citizens of the sanctuary. Not the sanctuary which man erected, but God made. And are and of the household of God. And immediately he goes on to speak about the temple. Verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You say, I thought that Jesus Christ was the foundation. Oh, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And the apostles laid the foundation of this temple on that chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together. Here's another point. The apostle who wrote this epistle used the words fitly framed together twice. Once here and once in Ephesians 4 where it says the members of the body fitly joined together. The church which is the body is the, in the uh, practical section is the church which is the inner shrine of the temple in the doctrinal section. You say, why do you say inner shrine? Why, because there are two words that are translated temple. One means the whole set of buildings. The other means the innermost shrine, the holiest of all. Shall I leave you guessing which one is used here in Ephesians? You say, I have a feeling it might be the innermost shrine, the holiest of all it is, friends. What a calling we have. What a call to us to watch our steps here that we don't disgrace in any shape or form that holy position we have in him. All we're a long way off it yet. But isn't it, isn't it an encouragement to know that one day, one day, we're going to stand in his presence without spot or wrinkle or any such thing because there is abounding grace towards us. Just another word or two. Ephesians 2, verse 6. It says, He hath raised us up together and made us sit together. Are you conscious of the emphasis and the strangeness of that word sit? I think perhaps it would do us good to turn back once more to the epistle to the Hebrews just to give that a little consideration. Chapter 10. Verse 11. And every priest standeth. That's important thing. Every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. See how important that is. He sat down at the right hand of God. 
He did what no priest ever could do. Sit down in the presence of God. Now the extraordinary or wonderful fact is that we, because we belong to him, with all our known perfections on our head, yet mercifully cancelled by the blood of Christ, are not going to stand in the presence of God. We are already reckoned to be seated. Don't you feel that this is such a precious truth that we ought to keep it before our hearts and minds so that it should influence all our ways in our poor little pilgrimage on the way to glory? Now, I don't think there's very much more I want to add to that except to say that we want to meet together with this passage in front of us for a few of these Sunday morning services. And I commend the study of this passage in Colossians chapter 1 to all those who are concerned to know the answer to the question what is the hope of your calling and what is the exceeding greatness of his grace to us who are accepted in the Beloved.